Hey, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. On this podcast, we go in depth with leading experts from all walks of life to understand and improve your health and well being. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Doreen Saltiel about heart disease, but specifically as it relates to women. And yes, we even go into menopause and hormone replacement therapy, HRT. Dr. Saltiel is an internist, interventional cardiologist, and is board certified by both A4M and IFM, two big functional medicine associations. Then, because she apparently needed more schooling, she became a lawyer. She regularly teaches and writes on the topic of hormones and cardiovascular disease at both A4M and Precision Analytical, the creators of the Dutch Test. In fact, she and I used to work together at Dutch Test, so it was an absolute pleasure talking with her today as heart disease can present differently in women. Plus, the whole menopausal HRT aspect can be really confusing. Now, I do wanna take a moment here to clarify that she does mention how women aren't dying of breast cancer, but they are dying of heart disease. Her comment was in relation to the National Cancer Institute statistic that says 90% of all women, all breast cancer stages, survive five years after diagnosis. So while women do die from breast cancer, they are way more likely to die from heart disease. Here's a clip from today's conversation. Well, there are a couple of things. One, women present a lot of times differently than men do. Certainly, if a woman comes in with substernal chest pain radiating down her arm or to her jaw, or she has a toothache that won't go away, that's classic angina. It goes away with nitroglycerin or rest, whereas women a lot of times will present with fatigue. And that's all they'll have is overwhelming fatigue or they'll have epigastric pain or discomfort, and they just ignore those things. That's the first thing. The second thing is a lot of women have a depressed mood, which will increase their risk of ischemic heart disease more so than men. And so understanding that if a woman all of a sudden has overwhelming fatigue and she's sad and has maybe or maybe not has epigastric discomfort. It could be due to hormones, as we know, but it also could be due to ischemic heart disease. This is just a small taste of the amazing show we have for you today. Hey, before we get started, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. And if you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you are placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health and Rupa is the best way to order, manage and track results from over 25 different labs in one single place. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. So if you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Doreen Saltiel, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank you, my friend. <laughs> I'm actually really excited to interview you. One, because for the listeners, Dr. Saltiel and I have worked together for years at a different company when I worked at Dutch, and I am in awe of her knowledge around cardiovascular disease and hormones and women's health. I have learned a ton from her. So I'm excited to have you here today. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're so kind. Before we get started, though, why don't you give everyone a little bit of your background and what you do and what you stand for, and, and then we'll move into heart disease in women. Sure. I train traditionally as a board-certified internist and then went on and did a cardiology fellowship at Walter Reed and then did an interventional fellowship. And for about 25 or 30 years out of my over 40 years of practicing medicine, I did interventional cardiology. And I was an army doc for many years. No, I didn't retire, silly me. But I left as the chief of cardiology in the Southeast Regional Consultant for Cardiovascular Disease for the Army in uh, 1993. And I was in private practice for many, many years. 
And then over time, I did the A4M Metabolic Medicine Fellowship and took their boards, even though they're not recognized by the ABIM or any other board. Mm -hmm. And I did their advanced certifications and I did IFM stuff and I'm in the process of getting IFM certified. And in addition to practicing preventive cardiology, I got involved in a hormone practice and then I knew Mark Newman, the president of Precision Analytical, maker of the Dutch test, mm -hmm. for many years since he was at ZRT. And then at one time we said, wouldn't it be great for us to work together? And sun and the moon or whatever aligned. <laughs> and about almost three years ago, he asked me to start doing some writing and I started writing white papers. And then over time, I got more and more involved. And you were so kind to invite me to lecture to the clinical team when you were the medical director. And then Mark had the idea of developing education. And so I'm involved in helping develop education. Which, and you do it, you do a lot of it. <laughs> yes. And I teach and I still see patients. I don't have a full practice. I have a small practice. So my hands always stay in clinical medicine. And so that's me. And, and oh, by the way, at some point, she went and became a lawyer as well. Yes, I did. <laughs> I have a law degree. Yes, I do. Yes, she's definitely one of the fantastic doctors that has a lot of initials, well-earned and well-deserved initials behind her name. So I'm really glad that you're here today. And honestly, given your vast knowledge in heart disease. We're recording this in February. It is Heart Health Month. But what we're going to focus in on is on women, because I think a lot of heart disease gets focused in on men. A lot of the research historically has been on men. A lot of the what symptoms to look out for has been on men, which is great and wonderful. But I think by understanding some of the information today, we're going to talk about we could quite literally save somebody's life. But I want to start out with when it comes to heart disease in women, what are we getting wrong? Like, what are you seeing in the field? What have you seen over the years that we're getting wrong? Well, firstly, it's underdiagnosed mm. and it's always been thought of as a quote unquote male disease when it's actually an equal opportunity killer. It kills men and women equally. And in fact, after a first myocardial infarction, the mortality rate in women is higher than it is in men. Mm. So the first thing is we have to identify those women, or we have to educate clinicians about cardiovascular risk, and that women should be viewed in the same light and through the same lens as men are. How is our heart disease different, though? It's the number one killer, but how is it different? What are we looking at? Well, there are a couple of things. One, women present a lot of times differently than men do. Certainly, if a woman comes in with substernal chest pain radiating down her arm or to her jaw, or she has a toothache that won't go away, that's classic angina. Mm. It goes away with nitroglycerin or rest, whereas women a lot of times will present with fatigue. Ugh. And that's all they'll have is overwhelming fatigue, or they'll have epigastric pain or discomfort. And they just ignore those things. That's the first thing. The second thing is a lot of women have a depressed mood, which will increase their risk of ischemic heart disease more so than men. And so understanding that if a woman all of a sudden has overwhelming fatigue and she's sad and has maybe or maybe not has epigastric discomfort. It could be due to hormones, as we know, mm -hmm. but it also could be due to ischemic heart disease. The other thing is coronary anatomy is very different or how an event occurs in women is different than in men. Typically, men have a soft plaque that ruptures and you get this acute MI and everybody knows you get platelets aggregating and the vessel closes. Women typically have a coronary obstruction, but what they have is superficial kind of denuding. They don't have the full plaque rupture. Hmm. And then women have microvascular disease, which is a big deal. They both have men and women have endothelial dysfunction as a root cause, but how they present 
a lot of times women will present with an acute coronary syndrome or an infarct and have normal epicardial coronaries, the big coronaries, mm-hmm. and they'll have microvascular disease. And then when we talk about depression or the broken heart syndrome, which is Takasubu's mm-hmm. cardiomyopathy, it occurs 80% of the patients who have Takasubu's are postmenopausal women who have had a significant stressor in their lives. Women report stress more often. And then the last thing, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little more, is abnormal birth history. Oh. Abnormal reproductive birth history. Preeclampsia increases the risk of diabetes and stroke by twofold, and hypertension is increased, and preeclampsia and what did I say? Gestational diabetes also increases the risk of ischemic heart disease. And then a preterm baby also increases the risk of ischemic heart disease. So the one thing we don't do when we're thinking about this is take a good history, a good birth history, not just were you breastfed? Did you breastfeed? It's how were your children born? Mm. Were they born early? Did you have gestational diabetes? And these women who've either had preeclampsia or gestational diabetes need to be screened six, eight weeks later and followed on a regular basis because their risk is higher. Okay. Women who have PCOS, mm. they don't have a higher mortality, but they have increased coronary artery calcium deposition in their arteries, which is a marker of myocardial infarction. Now, is it because of high androgens? I don't think so. I think it's because of their insulin resistance, which drives PCOS. So that's how we're all different. (laughs) Going back to the fatigue part, do you know why is it that fatigue is a major present, a sudden onset of, of fatigue, or it just happens? Nobody knows why. Okay. Nobody knows why. And if I told you that vasomotor symptoms increase event rates in women. Which are hot flashes. Yes. Increased cardiovascular event rates in women, just like erectile dysfunction equal cardiovascular disease and has been associated with increased vascular events in men, vasomotor symptoms increase cardiovascular events. So we shouldn't ignore this perimenopausal period. And I think it is the most undertreated mm. or undervaluated time in a woman's life. And we're definitely going to get there because I know women are listening and going, ah, oh, crap, I totally have hot flashes and, or I've had them for months or I've had them for years. And that's really eye-opening mm-hmm. that it can increase, that it can increase the events. Mm-hmm. What are, when it comes to women in particular, what are some of the big risk factors that you see that increase our risk for heart disease, lifestyle or? Yeah, well, hypertriglyceridemia impacts women's risk of cardiovascular disease more than it does in men. Mm, Okay. Having high triglycerides. Insulin resistance. Yes. Okay. And then of course, lifestyle, which is diet. Women tend to not exercise as much. Exercise, sleep. Women tend not to sleep as much. Mm -hmm. And really marital stress. When they did the studies on work stress and marital stress, marital discord increased the risk of ischemic heart disease in women or events. And there's no shortage of that. Yeah. In addition to the traditional risk factors of hypertension, diabetes and insulin resistance, persistently high, excuse me, glucoses with that hemoglobin A1C being not really diabetic for your listeners, but in that 5.6, 5.7 to 6, that's not normal. And a lot of doctors will say, oh, don't worry about it. That's not normal. And so I would say the two most undertreated entities are hypertension Mm -hmm. and insulin resistance. And if those were treated optimally, we could decrease our event rates. In addition, lipids aren't treated as aggressively as they are in our male counterparts. Yeah. What blood pressure do you, what, when you're talking hypertension, what blood pressure starts to concern you? Where do you start to go? Hey, you're hedging towards the cliff. Let's back up. Well, if their blood pressure persistently is great, if their diet, the lower number blood pressure is greater than 85 persistently, I start saying we need to do something. 
I'm not talking about medicines. <laughs> when they get to 90, I start talking about medicines. And my optimum blood pressure mm -hmm. is 110 over 60 or 70. Way lower than what <laughs> we get told or the commercials on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Typically, they say 120 over 70. Well, that's average. So do you want to be average or do you want to be optimal? Yeah. That's the difference between our traditional counterparts, some of whom I have a tremendous amount of respect for, but they take average. We in the functional medicine community look for optimum. They treat symptoms. We look for root causes. Mm. And remember, cortisol or stress drives all cardiovascular outcomes. And women report more stress on whatever survey they do. Women report a higher stress score than men do across the board. And when you add stress to all the other risk factors, it'll increase the risk of cardiovascular disease by probably two to two and a half times. Wow. That's a big number. Yeah. So things that we can do that are simple. Yeah. I shouldn't say simple. They're manageable. Yes. They don't require medicines. They're within our control. That's probably a better way to phrase it. They're within our control. We can do something about it to lower our cardiovascular risk. I love that. And we're definitely going to get, we're going to absolutely talk about those things too. I want to go back to the insulin resistance. Can you explain what insulin resistance is? To people listening? What does that mean if somebody says you're insulin resistant or getting close to? Well, we all have receptors on organs that insulin is a peptide that when blood sugar goes up, the pancreas says, uh-oh, I need to release insulin. Insulin is released and actually it should shuttle it into and do something such that you're not persistently hyperglycemic. So your blood sugars aren't persistently high. Over time, the receptors say, hmm, what's going on here? It's always like that. And so the receptors become resistant and your pancreas over time gets tired. And there's a term called beta cell fatigue. And really what that is, is that the pancreas has been working so hard for so long, it can no longer pump out the needed insulin to take that glucose and shuttle it in. What raises glucose? Stress. Yeah. Stress is the number one driver. And then diet is number two. I don't think people realize with like cortisol, right? Cortisol, you and I talk about this. It's a glucocorticosteroid. It's a steroid hormone that manages glucose. And by manages, it increases. It increases glucose. Now, I remember, if you're listening, Cortisol gets a bad rap, right? It totally gets a bad rap. And stress itself is there's, there's a normal, natural part of life. There are different kinds of stress. There's how do you handle stress? There's different lengths of time that stress can be acute or chronic. And we need glucose to stay alive as humans. And so when your cortisol goes up, it's just trying to protect you, give you some glucose to go to the brain. But as you're saying, it's the chronicity, right? Just like your blood pressure. If your lower number of blood pressure is starting to creep up 85, 87, 88, 90, 92, over time, just like if your cortisol is high over time. So now it's causing glucose to go up, stay up higher than the reference range, higher than you really should over time. We have some real serious heart disease risks right there. Right. And remember, the body is just doing what it thinks it's supposed to do. Protect you. It's adapting. Yeah. Right. It's a maladaptive response to what it thinks it should do. Yeah. And like you said, if you're acutely ill and you're bleeding, say you get cut, you want all those, you want cortisol, you want vasoconstrictors to kind of stop you from bleeding. If you have an infection, you want all of that, but you don't want this low grade chronic cortisol production because the gut gets leaky. And then when the gut gets leaky, stuff passes into the circulation which causes the body to say, uh-oh, uh-oh. And lipids are part of the immune system. They're part of the innate immune system, meaning they react first. Yeah. And so when your lipids are high, by definition, you're inflamed. And so then the question becomes why? Not just give you red yeast rice or berberine or statin. Why? Right. And that's the questions our traditional peers don't ask. Right. And what I love is that you can check your, you can keep tabs on your blood pressure. Mm -hmm. You can see, 
how close you are to getting to the cliff of having too high a blood pressure. It's the uh, tracking your blood pressure, checking your blood pressure. It's not expensive. It's not weird. It's not crazy. It's a practical, tactical thing somebody can do. Somebody listening can go, oh yeah, I have a family history of heart disease. I've been told I should, I have some markers or some risks I need to personally worry about. I can be proactive and check my blood pressure and make sure that bottom number is not creeping up over 85. Just like with glucose and insulin, when you go in for your physical, you can ask, can I have a fasting insulin and a fasting glucose? And you can proactively start to track these things absolutely, so that you don't fall off the cliff of heart disease and God forbid, have a heart attack or something because you knew five years prior, like, uh uh-oh, my blood pressure is starting to creep up. Uh Uh-oh, my insulin and glucose are starting to creep up. Let's be proactive. Yep. And I love that, the proactive part of it. So when we're looking at women, at what age... When you're talking to your patients, at what age do you start to put heart disease on their radar? Like, do my 20-year-olds need to freak out? (laughs) We're talking 50. (laughs) Well, no, if somebody is 20 and they've had, say they're in their 20s and they've had these abnormal birth events, Mm -hmm. preeclampsia, they've had a preterm baby, they've had gestational diabetes, I tell them, here's what we need to do. We need to follow you with fasting blood sugars, fasting insulin, and we need to watch your blood pressure on a regular basis. If we're talking, then add to that, if a woman has significant insulin resistance, now she's in her, she's still in her 20s and say she's obese, that's a different issue for me because obesity, especially central obesity, the fat cells or the adipose tissue uh, is an endocrine organ. Yeah. They have all these pro-inflammatory things that make you more prone to chronic inflammation, which increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. So I start as early as a 20-year-old. If somebody comes to me because they have a family history in a first-degree relative of cardiovascular disease, I start right there restratifying them. Do I send them for calcium scans? No, I don't do any of that. But I start the discussion right there and then. I love that. I start watching their blood pressure and their insulin levels and their cortisol. Yeah. It's going to be really, really important for them. Then we talk about lifestyle. Starting from a right then and there, a young age, which is yep. great. And I think I don't think women know that they can do that. You don't often think heart disease as a 20-year-old. You don't think if you have had gestational diabetes or preeclampsia or PCOS, you know, is another, the insulin resistant form of PCOS. You may not be thinking heart disease. You're thinking in the moment and now and what's going on, but thinking into the future is not probably crossing your mind. So to know that that, as you say, risk stratification probably should happen now. Yeah. Start thinking about that future. It can make a big difference. Right. Because even lean people can have visceral fat around their organs. And so... I would say insulin resistance is key to preventing treating and optimizing glucose and insulin levels is key to preventing cardiovascular disease. Okay. Now, as we're progressing along, she's getting older, she's going through life, family history of heart disease. What other things do you start to think about as far as a workout goes? Like if you had a pyramid, where do you start? And then what's at the tippy top of like the most serious tests that you're looking at. Okay. So a cardiac cath would be at the top. Okay. (laughs) So if we talk about invasive right up there. Okay. So at the bottom is, I start with a good history with all the things we've talked about. Yeah. And then remember all these fancy, crazy calculators that they have, Framingham and Reynolds and all of these underestimate cardiac disease in women. Oh, Because the estimates were all done in men. Mm. There's something called Q-risk whatever. Three, I think they're up to now, which includes things like erectile dysfunction for men, but autoimmune diseases, which increase the risk of cardiovascular disease in women. So a young woman with Hashimoto's, a young woman with lupus, or as a woman gets older, or anybody with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or Hashimoto's, my radar starts to go up. Okay. And I will still put them into that. 10-year risk calculator. And depending on their risk and these other factors, say she's in her 40s and she starts having vasomotor symptoms, 
The question then becomes, what does she look like on the inside? So does she have hypertension? Does she have insulin resistance? Does she have hyper high lipids and high triglycerides? If she has any of those traditional risk factors, she has what's called endothelial glycocalyx dysfunction, which means endothelial dysfunction, and she has leaky blood vessels. Explain what the endothelium is first, though. The endothelium is this thin lining that lines every vascular vessel. Okay. And it's a barrier. And that and the endothelial glycocalyx protect and prevent bad stuff from getting into the arteries. So when those things get damaged, insulin resistance damages it, high lipids damages it, chronic inflammation damages it, a leaky gut damages it, and women tend to have more irritable bowel, excuse me, and leaky guts that are recognized because guys typically don't complain or they don't go to the doctor or one or the other. And if you have a leaky gut, you have leaky blood vessels. So if I see a young woman who's got Hashimoto's, I know she has leaky blood vessels. Oh, wow. How do I know that? Let me explain how I know that. Because that means she has a leaky gut. So the leaky gut causes stuff to go across and bind to fancy receptors. The thyroid has on it a place for these fancy receptors to kind of sit in the receptor and uh, bind to. The thyroid says, "Uh uh-oh, foreign body, foreign body. So it sort of has to make antibodies. And so if you have thyroid antibodies, you know you have a leaky blood vessels and a leaky gut. If you have protein in your urine, you have leaky blood vessels and a leaky gut because it's only if you damage that thin layer of the endothelium that you will get these things that get through. And so the first thing I start with is I'll do a lab panel and I always get thyroid antibodies. That's easy to do. Yeah. And I do what's called an advanced lipid profile. And I look at key markers on that advanced lipid profile. And then I determine based on the patient's total cardiovascular risk, the woman's total vascular risk, which takes into account these other things. Does she have autoimmune disease? Yes. Does, did she have uh, pregnancy issues? The, is she stressed? What does her cortisol look like? That may drive me, not in a 30-year-old probably, but as a woman gets to 40 and above to do a coronary artery calcium scan okay. because that's predictive of future events. For example, if somebody has a score of zero, their risk is like low. Okay. If their score is between one and 100, then their risk is uh, low to moderate. If it's between 100 to 300, it's high. And if it's above 300, it's very high. How often did you see the high and very high in practice? A lot. Yeah. Well, remember, people selectively came to me. (laughs) So yes, I saw it a lot. Now, if I have an advanced lipid profile and the particle number is really high and there are other markers that are really indicative of the vascular inflammation, like myeloperoxidase and LPPLA2, I am really aggressive with them, regardless of their chronological age, regardless. Once I see those markers, and if somebody is asymptomatic, am I going to do a treadmill? No, because the pretest probability of disease of a young woman is lower and it may be intermediate, but you always get these false positives with women. Mm. So if they have an intermediate, if a woman has an intermediate risk, I will do a nuclear stress test. And how is that different? Well, it uses uh, thallium or another marker. And so that it look, goes to the myocardium. So you're not just relying on what the EKG says on the treadmill. You have other areas where if there are blockages, you'll get defects in the myocardial scan. If there's normal flow or non-obstructive flow, then it'll be evenly distributed. Okay. 
And so it really depends on their pretest probability of disease. So for example, if you have a 25-year-old female who has pleuritic chest pain, meaning they have, they have pain when they take a deep breath, no other symptoms, no other risk factors, lean, labs don't say that it should raise a red flag, I'm just going to follow her if she has a family history, right? Mm -hmm. Why would I? She's asymptomatic, putting her on a treadmill is not going to help you. You're going to get a false positive, and there's no reason at this point to do additional tests. I'll do a Dutch test. You know, I'll look at her cortisol. I certainly will look at her estrogen metabolism, and I will look at all of those things and try and optimize them, but that would be the end of my cardiovascular workup. Speaking of cardiovascular workup, with this advanced, the advanced lipid test, can you just touch on that? Explain what that means when, because most everyone's used to a cholesterol test, right. total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, triglycerides. But yeah. for women in particular, when you're doing this advanced testing, which is not uncommon, by the way, it's advanced because it's mm -hmm. cooler markers, but it doesn't mean it's rare or weird or unobtainable, except for the elite. It's not. You, they're very accessible nowadays, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Quest. Yeah. Quest, LabCorp, they all have them. Which is, can you explain in women, like some yeah. of the key markers you're looking for? Well, when you get an LDL, you don't know what that LDL means. For example, if you have really big LDL, those are protective LDL, and say the number is 100, but they're all really big, that's good. What happens if they're all really small and those are the bad ones? You don't know that unless you do what's called a particle number. That particle number will tell you whether that 100 is good cholesterol or that is bad cholesterol. Everybody thinks a higher HDL number is protective. Not all the time. It depends if I look at HDL as if it's the garbage truck, right? Yeah. It picks up all that bad cholesterol from the blood vessels and brings in antioxidant stuff to the blood vessel to break down bad stuff. But if your garbage trucks are full, they're not going to work. Yeah. And so how do you know? You look at a particle number. If your particle number is really low, that's bad. So you want to know you want a high particle number. You want to know your HDL are working properly. And then you look at something called myeloperoxidase, which is released by white blood cells in the blood vessel as a response to inflammation. And if myeloperoxidase is high, that means your vessel's inflamed. And myeloperoxidase makes HDL not work so well. Mm. So your garbage trucks aren't going to work. And then an enzyme called LPPLA2 is released by macrophages, and it's indicative of vascular inflammation. So when I see all of those things, in addition to an HSCRP. C-reactive protein. Yes. And when I see all of those things in somebody, I don't care how old they are. Their biological age is older than their stated age. Yeah. I'll do a CIMT, easy, non-invasive, no radiation. Explain what that is. Carotid intimomedial thickness is where they do an ultrasound. They stick a transducer and they just measure. You want it less than 0.5. If it's greater than 0.5, say I start looking at other things. Then I may get a coronary calcium scan. I may do that kind of stuff for better risk prediction. What I'm hearing, which is what I love, is that despite the fact that heart disease is the number one killer, there is a lot of workup you can do. Yes. There's a lot of workup you can ask for. Yep. There are things you can self-monitor, such as blood pressure. And pulse. To really, to really get a handle on what your particular heart disease risk is. And for people who have their blood drawn and they have their results sitting right in front of them, they can follow along with some of these markers and check to see, is their myeloperoxidase high? Just look at the reference range, is yours high? If they've had some of these advanced markers, right? If they've had, they can look at particle size. They can look at their insulin. Mm -hmm. If they've had a fast insulin drawn to see where do they sit. Now, as you said earlier, there's average and then there's optimal and as functional medicine practitioners. And again, we're trying to keep people like children. We don't want them near the cliff because they'll fall off the cliff. So we're trying to keep people optimal, which is so they don't go near the cliff of heart disease. Yes. Where do hormones play a role in this? As women get older mm -hmm. and she goes through menopause and poof, she has no more hormones or so she feels like it. Her heart disease risk goes up. Yeah. Actually, the risk starts to accelerate in perimenopause. 
in late perimenopause, the risk starts to accelerate. And really, ER, the receptor, estrogen receptor density is how many receptors you have is based on your serum level of estradiol or your urine level of estradiol. And what the literature tells us is that women who have low hormones are at increased risk for vascular disease. And you know that when you see that by the time a woman gets to be 50 or 55, their risk is equivalent to a man's. So she's, that change really does start to happen at perimenopause. We're a little more protected. Yes, late perimenopause. We're a little more protected younger because of our estrogen. Estrogen, yes. And then as we switch, yes, our risk goes up. Yeah, and actually it starts to go up early in perimenopause. But women still, we all still have enough, or you all still have enough. (laughs) I don't have enough. You all still have enough hormone for it to be somewhat protective. But as you get into late perimenopause, which is defined as missing more than two cycles in a time frame, it being amenorrhea, no cycle for Mm -hmm. greater than two months, your risk escalates. Is it the same for women who have like premature ovarian insufficiency or have had their ovaries removed? Those women are at risk immediately. Immediately. Yes, they need hormones immediately. Their risk is higher because they've totally lost their hormones. And so early menopause carries a higher risk than natural menopause. And then some people say, is that should I take hormones that early? Yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> in case she wasn't clear, that was an affirmative. Yes. And I get asked this, and I had patients in practice who, let's say they had a hysterectomy, ovaries removed, mm-hmm. or premature ovarian insufficiency. But more specifically, it was women who'd had a, hyst- a full hysterectomy, and their practitioner told them, well, we're going to watch and wait. Are you on hormone? Is anyone following you? Has anyone done any hormone testing on you? They say, no, they told me that they're going to watch and wait and see what happens. What are they waiting for? What are they waiting for? Death? I said, how do you feel? And they're like, I feel horrible. I feel terrible. Like, yeah, let's be proactive about this. Let's do something. Especially if this all occurs before the age of 45. Yeah. That risk is really high. We don't have to talk about the risk of bone osteopenia and osteoporosis. That's a whole different discussion, which actually the severity of osteoporosis increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. In other words, the worse a woman's osteoporosis is, the higher her risk. I did not know that. So yes, all these things play into the risk of cardiovascular disease. And so women need hormones. And if you look at the studies across the board, forget the WHI, that study needs to be very- (laughs) No kidding. Coffin and never brought up again because for the listeners, it was done with synthetic hormones and nobody, nobody in this day and age should be taking synthetic hormones. Nobody should be taking a Premarin. Nobody should be taking a progestin, a methyprogesterone or methylprogesterone. None of those things, none, zero. Yeah. And when they looked at the data, on individuals who took bioidentical hormones, meaning transdermal estradiol, oral micronized progesterone, or vaginal progesterone, micronized progesterone, not a ring that's got all the synthetic hormones in them, you want, this will decrease your risk of a heart attack and death and death by up to 54%. In fact, it'll decrease the risk of breast cancer which blows people's minds. Right. Estradiol decreases breast cancer risk. And so breast cancer, we can talk about doesn't in and of itself doesn't kill people, but, and not anymore anyway, but cardiovascular disease can kill you with your first event. Yeah. So yes, I give women in the late perimenopausal period, a patch transdermal estradiol patch, 0.025 milligrams. I start, remember if they're still having estrogen surges, you're not going to put them over the edge. You're just going to even things out. And they need progesterone, mm-hmm. must have progesterone. And in fact, I give these women testosterone. Why do I give them testosterone? Because when they looked at the studies, they noted that adding testosterone to estradiol, optimized estradiol and progesterone, 
Number one, improve their bone mineral density to a greater degree than the estradiol and progesterone, but also improve their endothelial function, that first step in that vascular process. So yes, women need hormones. Yes. In the WHI, which I always found really suspicious, they have an estradiol only. They have estradiol only in it. Mm -hmm. But all the news and everything was focused on hormones cause cancer. And yet in their estrogen only sections, it didn't. Yeah. The very interesting thing is, is that the WHI, just to touch on this a bit, was not a breast cancer study. It was not set up to be a breast cancer study. It was set up to look and see if postmenopausal women, and the average age in the WHI was 62 years old, whether women who are older achieve the same cardiovascular benefits from hormones as younger women. They stopped the study because of this cockamamie breast cancer thing. They focused on this small percentage of individuals who took it, and really, there really was no increased risk with uh, conjugated equine estrogen and a progestin. It's just that the placebo group had a really low risk. And so nobody should take any of those drugs. That study should be put to bed. Mm -hmm. But one thing that's really important for the listeners to understand, if your doc uses serum and you're recently menopausal, you want that serum level to be somewhere between 40 and 60. It will decrease that carotid progression. Mm -hmm. On a Dutch test, that's about, oh, let's see, 1.8 to 2 or 2.2 around there. Yeah. Early menopause. Women who are older, more than six years post-menopause or more than 10 years post-menopause, those women needed lower serum levels because higher serum levels actually caused increased plaque. Mm. And so you want to keep an older woman's serum level 20 to 30-ish, and you want to keep her Dutch 0.7 to 1.3-ish, 1.5-ish around there. Those are the safest levels, and they will improve bone mineral density. They'll do all of those kinds of things because 20 to 40 protects bones. Mm -hmm. takes care of vasomotor symptoms, vulvovaginal atrophy, all the symptoms that women complain about. Right. So, and for those who have forgotten, vasomotor basically is hot flushes. (laughs) And night sweats, yes. And night sweats. And then vulvovaginal atrophy is is literally sort of shrinkage and thinning of the vagina. Right. Women get pain with intercourse. Mm -hmm. They get terrible dryness. They may even get bleeding from just the thinning and... Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. Whoever designed menopause, it, the way that the current 21st century that women experience it often, I'd like, you and I would like a word with that. Right. <laughs> we would like to make some changes. Exactly. Well, and I wanted, I want to clarify with listeners, Dr. Saltiel has a lot of free webinars all around menopausal hormone therapy on the Dutch test website that is, like I said, free and available. The point of today's podcast was to talk about heart disease in women. And so I've listened to her lecture and talk for years about this. I've read the white papers that she has put out. I've read the study. So I have actually had the pleasure to be able to learn from her around this and breast cancer, learn about the WHI. But I know it's, I will, I will have to have you back to talk specifically around be my hormone replacement, because as we get to, you know, as we're nearing the end of this podcast, and I know women listening are going to say, either, yes, I agree with you. This is amazing. I've thought this all along, or they're going to say, no, that's no, my sister went on hormones and quote, got breast cancer. And it can be very confusing. It can be very scary. Pharmacies still put out in all their pamphlets. If you're given hormones, heck, you could even be given thyroid and sometimes or progesterone and you'll get a whole thing about how it causes breast cancer. And Mm -hmm. it hasn't, the current amount of research that's out there now is not what's being unfortunately presented in a lot of conventional clinical offices or pharmacies. Like they haven't caught up. They're still relying back on that study, the WHI trial study that set everything down in a downward spiral. And you have to remember that after the WHI came out, medical schools, residencies all stopped teaching about hormones. 
So there are hundreds of physicians out there, thousands of physicians Mm -hmm. out there, a decade of physicians or two decades of physicians who know nothing about hormones. And when doctors don't know, they say, don't do it. Right. And I have to say that I've learned a lot from you too, Kelly. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, So this is a mutual (laughs) admiration podcast and your listeners should not be fooled. You too are an expert in a ton (laughs) of areas and I'd love to interview you someday for your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I do kind of want to, you know, finish out on, we talked about hormone replacement therapy, but going a, a more everyday natural bent, what are other things women can do for their heart? Proactive, practical, tactical, you know, this is the root cause medicine podcast from a diet point of view, lifestyle. Are there supplements that you kind of feel just across the board can be really helpful? Mm-hmm. So sleep six to eight hours. I would say seven to eight hours. Yep. (laughs) There's some literature that say if you sleep more than eight hours, like nine and 10 hours, that may be a sign of a chronic inflammatory disease. And it's not the nine hours that increases your risk of heart disease. It's the other things. Mm. And then diet, I would say a Mediterranean style diet, which is more plant-based with olive oil, nuts and seeds, and it's the DASH diet which is the one for D-A-S-H, is adds nuts and seeds. And that'll decrease cardiovascular disease risk by 30%, which is almost equivalent to a statin. Wow. So those two things, stress management, very, very important, and gentle exercise. And then when we talk about supplements, I'm a big fan of Arteracil. Oh, yeah. I actually had my husband on that because of you which actually just got patented for plaque regression. Really? Yes. It heals that endothelial glycocalyx, that little blanket that sits on the endothelium. So it protects it from all the damage, the arterial wall. So that's one. Arterosol with an A for people who are listening, arterosol. Yes. A-R-T-E-R-O-S-I-L. I have to think about how to spell it. <laughs> Age garlic. Yeah, yeah. Yep, aged garlic also has been shown to decrease cardiovascular risk. And when you add that, when you add CoQ10 to aged garlic, you'll get lots of good stuff. If you need a fiber supplement, something called sun fiber, Mm. it decreases the bad stuff, increases the good stuff. And in studies has been shown to decrease diastolic blood pressure. Which is the lower number. Correct. And if we're talking about, now I'm not telling you all to go out and do this stuff. Right, right, right. Aged garlic is benign. Yeah. Arteracil is great. I would give it to anybody with a leaky gut. Uh, CoQ10, I think everybody needs, especially if you're on statin. But if your doc wants you to put you on a statin, ask about Reggie's rice. It is an alternative and has lots of polyphenols in it. You need a higher dose and have to take more pills. And like ACE inhibitors, it should be taken at night because the enzymes that these things work on are upregulated at night, meaning they're more active at night. And even with CoQ10, I mean, even with Reggie's Rice, you need CoQ10. And then there's berberine. Berberine actually is what's called a PCSK9 inhibitor, which is a fancy lipid medicine. It's at much lower doses but it's a fancy, and if you need, you can start with berberine. You may ultimately need, and you can should start with Registrice, so you don't need prescription statins. You don't need to go that route. Now, I will tell you, if I looked at somebody's lipid profile and I thought they were at moderate to high risk after doing all my stuff, I would recommend a statin. Yeah, totally. Because of the data. Yeah. I'm talking about low-risk individuals. Curcumin is great. I put curcumin on all my food. Turmeric. Yep. (laughs) Turmeric and black pepper. It helps the turmeric absorb more. Talk about antioxidants. Talk about uh, berries, beets, cruciferous vegetables. Eat the rainbow. And I tell people to avoid gluten and dairy, even if they don't have celiac disease or aren't gluten intolerant. Why is that? It's very inflammatory. In this country, gluten is just very processed. I mean, yeah, gluten products are very processed. Mm -hmm. And dairy is by definition inflammatory. 
So if you could give it up, that would be fantastic, especially if you have Hashimoto's, meaning if you have thyroid antibodies, that's the first thing. Gluten, dairy, change your diet to more of a Mediterranean-style diet, and you won't be deprived. Carrie and I are both gluten <laughs> yep. and dairy-free. We eat the same when we go to restaurants, and our friends say, we want what they're having. Yep. <laughs> and other friends say, we want the opposite of what they're having. And I typically, Carrie's nicer than I am. I typically glare at them. She just <laughs> smiles. And so there are lots of things you can do. And try and keep a routine. Routine is very, very important. The body likes routine. Yeah, it does. And socialization, I know this is in the era of COVID. Socialization is very, very important. If you look at the Mediterranean pyramid, it says eat with others, mm-hmm. express gratitude. Those things are very, very important. Things we all have control over. And, and my friend, I have gratitude for you and our friendship. I have gratitude for you. This has been amazing. I'm so glad you have been on. Uh, We will absolutely have you back to dive deep into the hormone replacement conversation because that is a hot topic. Tell everyone where they can find you. Where can they learn more from you? You know where. Dutch. (laughs) Precision Analytical. What's the website? What do you say? Yes. (laughs) DutchTest.com. There you go. There you go. DutchTest.com. And you will find Dr. Saltiel in the blog. She writes blogs for them. You will find her in the papers. You will find her in the webinars. She is a prolific speaker for them. And as I said earlier, it's all free. And if you have even HRT questions, menopause questions, watch her webinars. You will get a lot of information from them. You'll learn a lot. And if clinicians are listening, I will be teaching at A4M at the Spring Congress on laboratory testing. You actually teach a lot for them, yeah. a lot of you know their modules, so your name comes up often. Yeah, module one, which is the hormones, laboratory testing, mm-hmm. and then I'm teaching the interrelationships between the HPA axis and the cardiovascular disease, and then I'm teaching hormones and all the interrelationships. So for those who would like to learn more, and actually, the probably the best place is DutchTest.com, mm-hmm. and when Carrie invites me back. which I most definitely will because everyone wants to know about hormones. Well, Dr. Saltiel, Doreen, my friend, thank you for being on today. We really appreciate it. Oh, Carrie, it's my pleasure and hugs and love (laughs) to you and Hank. And Hank, Hank the dog. Yep. (laughs) Hank the dog. And of course, Eric. And, but you, we both are dog lovers. So thank you so very much. my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.